Welcome to the It's Morning in Africa podcast. The host of this podcast series is Jake Wekube Eduardo. He has almost three decades of experience in public policy and in the financial sector. He is currently the CEO of a major global bank in South Africa. This show is solutions biased to enable us to reimagine and build a better Africa with the benefit of hindsight and better knowledge. We need practical and innovative tools to get Africa on the move and to unlock its true potential. All views expressed on this show are personal views of the host and the guest and do not represent views of any corporate body or entities to which personal affiliations exist. Discussions on this show also do not constitute any form of market advice to be used as a basis for investment or financial decisions. Enjoy. My guest today runs one of Africa's preeminent and influential policy think tanks with a focus on equitable transformation of economic structures and opportunity within Africa for the benefit of Africans. He is an individual who has played a tremendous role in helping to shape the economic policy agenda and discussion, especially in his home country, Ghana, through activism when he was much younger and policy advocacy over the last two decades. He has a long track record in policy advocacy for economic justice and in the allocation of resources and equitable access to opportunity by marginalized communities. Some of the causes and arguments he has stood for in the past have since moved from the fringes into mainstream policy debates in Africa and around the world. He is the coordinator of Third World Network Africa, and of course I'm referring to Dr. Yao Graham. Dr. Graham, welcome. Good morning. Good to see you. The purpose of our conversation today is to help break down the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement and its political economy ramifications. Africa hasn't done so well during the ongoing global pandemic, which started a little over a year ago. Coincidentally, it was in, during 2020 also that African governments announced this agreement, that is the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement. So far, about 34 African states have ratified this agreement. And some of its objectives include creation of a single continental market for goods and services with the free movement of people and investment. Expanding intra-African trade through better harmonization and coordination of trade regimes. To enhance the competitiveness of manufacturing both at the industry and at the firm level. And some of the benefits we expect to derive at the end of it all is agricultural development and food security, structural economic transformation, industrialization, infrastructure development, progressive elimination of tariffs and non-tariff barriers to trade and investment, and transparent and predictable harmonious trade rules, intellectual property, and competition policy. Having spelled out a bit about the Africa Free Trade Continental Agreement, do you consider this agreement progressive and ambitious enough, considering what you have stood for for much of your adult life, adult professional life? Would you call this the holy grail of policy direction for Africa? Is this the silver bullet for Africa? It is a bullet. I'm not sure it is the silver bullet. Uh, why do I say that? Because um, I think first of all, the, the, in my view, there's a lot of confusion and conflation of the implications of the AFCFTA with uh, the whatever notion of uh, African integration or Pan-Africanism uh, people who speak about it aspire to. Um, I've heard many people who almost uh, casually assume that the kind of uh, vision of uh, Pan-Africanism, which is about a single continental economy, you know, within which people move freely and can set up and so on. Let me put this with the, the Pan-Africanism of the founding fathers, the Nkrumah types who were very, who saw uh, integration as a necessity 
for the development and transformation of Africa, primarily because the units of the African economy and politics, the nation state, many of them are irrational in terms of how they came to be created, their sustainability, and so on. And therefore, integration is a condition for being able to optimize the resources and advance the lives of Africa's people. The FCFTA is nothing of the sort. The FCFTA is a free trade agreement, very much in the footsteps of the WTO type free trade agreement. So to the extent that it involves the whole African continent, to the extent that it uh, is going to integrate, seeks to integrate markets, it's a very important and far-reaching agreement. And that we have to grant. And then we come then, therefore, to analyze what exactly would it achieve? What exactly are the problems that it, it throws up? Uh, what are the, who are the likely beneficiaries? And who are the likely losers? And then also to ask questions, I think, about was this the only option? Is this the best option? And has the process of creating it been optimal? So that even if this is what has been chosen as a path, whether done differently, it could have been more beneficial. So there are the whole host of questions you know, around it. But once we start from narrowing down that this is not the grand vision of African integration, it is a free trade agreement covering Africa, then we can begin to analyze it in terms of what we know about free trade agreements, in terms of their, their, their benefits and their costs. I see. That, that's a very important clarification you are bringing into this, because I think the average person would use them synonymously, that oh, the, the Africa free, Continental Free Trade Agreement implies integration of African economies. And what you're saying is that not necessarily so. Um, this is more a trade regime uh, seeking to improve trade across the continent. In fact, to double intra-African trade within, uh, I think, over a decade, from about 13.5% to a minimum of 25% over time. So then the question is, you talked about winners and losers and adjustments here and there. Would people like you, were people like you consulted in, in drawing up this agreement? Did you have any, were you involved with either the AU, at the AU level or governmental level? Did people like you have a voice when it was being drawn up, and do you have a voice now in the implementation? I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, my organization, Taiwan Network Africa, has a long history of working on trade policy issues. Uh, we're one of the first organizations to pick up issues around the World Trade Organization. Uh, we worked a lot around the economic partnership agreements uh, with Europe, always starting from the, start from the point that trade agreements should not simply be to about optimizing or kind of accelerating, uh, liberalizing the exchange of goods and services, but must go hand in hand with an agenda of transformation so that you minimize the, 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 the cost and also optimize the benefits for the greatest number, number of, of, of people. So to that extent, we've always believed that African integration must have a trade component because you can't have economic integration without trade integration. I mean, that's fundamental. Uh, so the idea of an African trade area is an important step. Where we consulted, not in a direct way, but because of our history of engagement with trade policy organizations, we knew what was unfolding. So in informal conversations and in informal processes, we did have uh, some access. But I think it's important not to confuse the access, okay, of as to a dedicated specialist organizations like TWN uh, 
with the kind of democratic participatory mechanisms which are needed across the board so that the African private sector, African workers, African farmers, all the people who are supposed to be the beneficiaries all contribute to the realization of the vision of the agreement have a role in it. To that extent, the SCFTA process has been a disaster, complete disaster. In most countries, at the regional level, at the continental level, the mechanism of participation have been virtually absent. Now, this is important because quickly in your opening thing, you put out a range of things that the FCFTA is about. And some of those representations actually conflate the objectives of the FCFTA with the, uh, the, the, the framework of boosting into Africa trade within which it is situated. Because the boosting into Africa trade, that framework recognizing, recognizing a number of elements critically recognizes participation of stakeholders. It recognizes the need to have a plan for boosting productive capacity. Okay? The participation thing never really got off the ground. I mean, of course, it starts from the national level. If gov national governments don't have a history of involving their citizens in certain policy-making processes, they, they are not likely overnight to start involving them in the AFCFTA. This is an argument we've made going back to the WTO about the weakness of mechanisms of engagement with the domestic private sector. An argument we made in our work around the economic partnership agreement. Weak, but that itself is really reflective of the, the democratic deficit you know, in our countries. Then you go to the REC and Pan-African level, you find it even more glaring. Because what you find is that if you're going to have those engagements at those levels, you must have vigorous mechanisms where maybe there's a, a regional forum where African trade unions, chambers of commerce, manufacturers associations actually have a place. When you have a big bang moment like an FCFTA, unless there's a very conscious process of identifying and bringing people to the table at the supranational level, it's not likely to happen. So what tends to happen is that the already established powerful business entities which tend to be dominated by transnational organizations, come to exert more influence. We saw this around the WTO. We saw that around the EPA, where the agenda was driven largely by a few firms with export interest you know, in, in, in the EU. Not, for example, who are going to be uh, affected by liberalization of, 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 of access to the market. So the participation was very weak. We participated in a number of things. For example, I think in 2016, there was an Africa Trade Week, high-level you know, dialogue uh, on the FCFTA. I was a speaker on the first panel with the Director General of, the, of, of, of UNCTAD, the Commissioner of Trade and Industry, the South African you know, uh, Minister of, of Trade and Industry, and, and, and a number of others. But really, that is not representative of a consultative mechanism. Yeah. We also work with the ATPC, the Africa Trade Policy Center, to organize a number of uh, colloquia uh, you know, uh, multi-stakeholder colloquia on the, on, on the process. We ourselves organized a series of meetings all over the continent on our own initiative, which brought together the kinds of people we felt should have a voice so exactly. as to inform our advocacy. Yeah. But that is separate from a consciously constructed policy of engagement and involvement. Well, thank you for that clarification. I've always had that suspicion that Perhaps the consultation process was weak because I myself was interviewed on this about 10 days ago on CNBC Africa. And it's part of the reason why I'm speaking to you because I didn't feel, I certainly didn't participate in any consultation process. I'm not sure I even knew. All I had was the Big Bang announcement uh, and officials and politicians backslapping each other on achieving um, this landmark agreement. 
But we know that change is not easy. It's not an easy experience. It's not a pleasant experience. And that's why the importance of stakeholder consultation is important. You talked about organized labor. You talked about manufacturers. You talked about even... I, I was interviewed on the basis of the financial sector. There are different players who come together to make this, these objectives. And they inform the negotiating position of, exactly. the, of the different countries. So one wonders whether... Are we underestimating the, what this journey involves? Do you think, as Africans, we are underestimating what this journey involves? Because you've partly answered the next question I was going to ask you, which was, do you think other stakeholders should be consulted? But you've answered that already. So do you think that we are underestimating this journey? And do you think that it has been well communicated to the intended beneficiaries, which is people who call Africa home? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, and again, but to go back to the beginning of your question, the, the people who have driven this policy, uh, I think the way it's been approached also reflects people's assumptions about how change should happen. What do I mean? I mean, if you believe, for example, that everybody should take their place, uh, swim or sink in the market, and you are committed to a certain approach to market liberalization. Uh, in that sense, um, you would approach things in a certain way. Uh, because, you see, the, I, mean, I, I keep insisting on situating the AFCFTA thing in the process of trade negotiations that African countries have been involved in, which have never been really interested in taking on board the views of people. I also think that because... Why is that? Well, what, what, what is difficult about turning around and looking for experts? Yeah, but it's a culture also of... I mean, in addition to the experts, there's a culture also of taking citizens for granted. You see? And also, if you look domestically in Ghana, um, when the business community have a problem, how, what are the mechanisms through which honest systematized, institutionalized basis, they can have dialogue with governments about things. I mean, in other places where, I mean, the, the, the big powers, the negotiating positions that they take into meetings are informed by the range of stakeholder engagement because it's, it's also a political decision that you're making about, you know, uh, benefits and costs. Some African countries do it better than others, okay? Uh, but it can be it's sporadic, it's sporadic. Um, so when you, when you talk about are we underestimating the cost, um, I think the, the technocrats largely, the technocrats and also the aid, uh, people give aid to the AU to drive this process. They see this as part of a mosaic Okay, of trade liberalization around the globe. It's almost as if Africa has fallen behind. People know that there are trade-offs. If you go back again to our own various experiences of trade liberalization, it is true that this goes beyond trading goods. It includes services and eventually also investment, competition, intellectual property. They've also added e-commerce, you know, and so on and so forth. But in general, the assumption is that liberalization as such is beneficial. And those who lose, somehow the market will balance them out. So it is a, it's a process of transformation through the shock of the market. Because this is what we did with structural adjustment. So the idea of... And, and so the... The point I made earlier about the conflation of the historic notion of Pan-Africanism with what is unfolding is an important point. Because since the, the dominance of kind of a neoliberal you know, uh, economics, in the African context itself, we've seen a shift in how people, dominant uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, technocrats, intellectuals, see African integration. 
it is no longer integration as affording Africa maybe some distance from the world to address its own uh, challenges. Because historically, I mean, people use all kinds of trade measures to support industrial policy transformation and so on. With what we have now, the space for that has become limited. Although there is, if you, if you choose to, you know, you can, you, you can use those instruments. So we shifted to a point where now people really are committed to what I call open regionalism. Open regionalism, which is basically like your regional integration, it's a, a microcosm of globalization. It is not the regional regionalism which sees that the, the measures that we take must also have policies that are supportive, you know, of how smallholder farmers can be supported. So if you compare the FCFTA terms to the terms of the Abuja Treaty, okay, which came into force uh, in 1994, which was intended to build an African uh, com economic community, stage two of the Abuja Treaty, talked, it, was, it saw the regional economic communities as the building blocks. It was, that was not a formula of open regionalism because it talks, for example, about the need in the second and third stages of the process to pay attention to coordination and integration of agriculture, industry, finance, transformation, the product, the factors of production, the productive capacity, which will enable all the participants to better benefit from the process of integration. Now, that's a completely different approach which says that we take them as they are. Togo, where if you close the border, people can get pepper and tomatoes because it either comes through the border from Ghana or smuggled. So you take Togo as it is, you take South Africa as it is, we liberalize the markets, we liberalize services. In that process, what is likely to happen is what we experience after structural adjustment. And after structural adjustment, um, at least I was old enough to experience it, um, there were winners and losers. And, and structurally, and many African economies, manufacturing was wiped out. Exactly. And the losers, in my view, never recovered. The, the system did not create, or whatever value the system created, the benefits were, the sharing was uneven. Yes. So what I recollect seeing as I grew up was that whole, whole families or generations never recovered from the promise of the fruits of liberalization. The dividends of liberalization were never really equitably distributed. The and same arguments were made about the WTO. I remember when the WTO yeah. was being created. The figures were in terms of so much expansion of global trade, so much additional value being created. All that may have come to pass. But we know that even in the global north, some of the discontent today yes. has to do with the impacts, yes. the decimation, the inequalities yes. that were accelerated. Even in the advanced yeah, economies. Yeah. So we are looking at a scenario but, like that. But on liberalization, let me ask you this question, because the proponents of liberalization, traditionally from the West themselves, mm -hmm. have suddenly become champions of Keynesian you know, state intervention. Yes. Look at the response to the global pandemic yes. and before that the global financial crisis yes. just pumping massive amounts of mm. state money into the economy mm. to prop up industries but mm. in Africa and much of the developing world it's a no-go area yeah but you know I mean let's so focus how, on, how do we reconcile yeah, but let's focus two? let's focus on Africa because I mean in we talk about the Asian you know, transition, Asian industrialization, new, industrial, new industrializing countries and so on. I mean, there are lessons there about how the market and, you know, interventionism are balanced, responding to the specific challenges. Because you can't apply policy, you know, ahistorically. You can't apply instruments ahistorically. Because all African economies are primary commodity export dependent economies. That is a challenge we want to transform. So you have these enclaves 
which are very heavily integrated into the global economy. And then a sea of people are excluded. Excluded but not unconnected to that global economy. Because on the flip side of a dependence on a few commodities of export is that those things fuel our ability to import a lot of consumer goods. So even the smallest woman or child, let's take the kids in the street who are selling some rubbish, cheap manufactured rubbish from some you know, Asian country. They are also part of that chain because as it goes around, they get their imports and they are earning a living from it. But those, that totality makes it difficult for some maize farmer to survive because imports are decimating you know, uh, their, 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 their production. Now, this is a reality that we want to transform. We talk about food security, we talk about this and that. So I go back to my Togo and, uh, and, 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 and Ghana and South Africa. Today, South African firms are moving across the continent, even without the FCFTA. Nigerian banks are moving the region, even without the FCFTA. The traditional transnational banks, with the kinds of reforms we've carried out, are even more consolidated and influential. You see the Ghanaian financial sector. Ghanaian players are a minority. If you took out the state-owned, where are they? So when we talk about, say, services liberalization, financial sector liberalization, two sides. One, that liberalization in other countries, Ghanaian firms will benefit because they have competitive capacity. We have an export capacity. On the other side, we have enough understanding of our domestic services market, financial services market, and we have a plan for growing the indigenous sector. That must be the starting point for getting involved in liberalizing any sector. If you ask for a vision of how to grow the Ghanaian financial sector, and if you even ask for a vision of how to grow the indigenous African financial players vis-a-vis -vis the transnationals, the AUC does not, cannot give you the data or a plan for that. The Ghana government doesn't have a plan. So this is the context within which ideas about the value of liberalization are being applied ahistorically without concreteness. So it is not about... So there are some things liberalization definitely has value, okay? But you must decide what it is you want to liberalize. When, how you sequence it, and what other measures that you put in place alongside your liberalization to make sure that what you have can grow is not being wiped out. So you take many of the Asian countries and the Chinese, you know, as, a, as a, the, the biggest example. When they, the, the, the use of tariffs and alongside liberalization, for a period, they said, look, we need these inputs for our manufacturing sector. So we lower the tariffs. But we can't produce this, so we have a different tariff thing. So the trade instruments are calibrated as part of a strategy for expanding the economy and strengthening domestic ownership. Now, if you took the AFCFTA, we have this boosting traffic trade agenda, which is sitting there. The element which has been picked out is the trade liberalization, the industrialization strategy, the this, the that. Nobody has any kind of concurrent agenda for how to get those things to work. So you are going to have structural transformation of what is, and the structural transformation that you get will be the aggravation of strengths and weaknesses across countries. The reason that, the, the fact that we are African countries doing this among ourselves doesn't change the essence of the economic relationship. The same way that global opening devastated our economies. In the same way among African countries, they are strong and weak countries. Strong sectors in some countries, weak sectors in others. We can't say because this is a pan-African project, these dimensions of the political economy are going to disappear because somehow it's an African project. Because we are dealing with a certain political economic reality. 
And this, so wrapping the thing in this thing about, you know, this is our vision of integration and so on, is either dishonest or disingenuous, or just purely. And so you, you see the Ghanaian context where there's a lot being made about the fact that we are hosting the secretariat. Great. It's a political recognition of Ghana. Hosting may build, bring some benefits in terms of Ghanaians being employed, okay, and hospitality services in terms of conferences and so on. But hosting the secretariat does not replace having a strategy yes. for how Ghana is going to engage in the arena created by the AFCFTA. Yes. And to that end, let me ask this. Most of Africa, I mean, our pursuit of our politics is now adversarial um, in the name of democracy. It's always been adversarial, actually. <laughs> well, <laughs> but it's now plural, yeah. adversarial, plural politics, yes. where, you know, we have political foes all competing in the same space. What if a political party campaigns on a pro-nationalist, anti-regional integration platform and wins? Yeah. How does that impact this grand project? I mean, I, I think it would be a mistake for anybody to campaign on an anti-regional integration platform. I think we are talking about the type of regional integration, the, the, the set of interrelated measures which will improve the benefits of integration. And I think it's important to underline that, which is why... I mean, for me and my colleagues in the Third World Network, it's been a, a challenge how to participate critically in the discussion of the FCFTA whilst making the point that integration is imperative. But it's precisely because that integration is imperative which has been used as a cover for what is essentially a liberalization agenda, not a transformation agenda. The, transformation we're going to get is going to be a product of the, as it were, the, the, the inequalities of the market. If you look at where people have built the, the integration, which is more developmental, the Europeans, the first step they took was not trade. After the Second World War, it was a coal and steel treaty because they identified, the, the founders identified those products as key for rebuilding their devastated economies. So let's have collaboration on the use of this, these key industrial inputs. So they signal the recognition that productive capacity is important. The African integration agenda has always spoken about the need to strengthen productive capacity. We have we dropped, a, we have things on the table for those. But what we are accelerating is a trade liberalization agenda without sufficient attention to the things that would allow us to actually boost our productive you know, uh, capacity. And you can, you can also see that the rush itself has become a problem. Because so dates have been announced. We are at a point where now the, the negotiations about the rules of origin have not been completed. I mean, if you take how long trade negotiations take, the timetable that was set out for the FCFT was almost as the people said they had know nothing about trade negotiations, or they assumed that things can be bulldozed through without any proper negotiations. So you don't have your rules of origin, how do you start trading? So it's, you think that they got the sequencing wrong, in your view? They got the sequencing wrong. There's not enough flexibility in the timetable. There's not enough of an opening, you know, to a debate. You know, uh, there's a kind of fiat approach to it. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the, 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 the malaise of, uh, of, of, of policymaking on our continent. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of things are tossed up. You know, something is started, something is dropped, and so on. And frankly, it also raises questions about the institutional quality which lead these processes. I mean, we can't discuss the FCFTA in a vacuum without talking about the institutions which are leading it. And the fact that really, I mean, if you have regimes which are as very aid dependent, 
in addition to buying into a kind of open regionalism agenda. I think we would see that in the having had the agreement, there's a whole host of challenges that countries will have to engage with when it comes to implementation. Those tend to be understated because in the implementation stage, there are things that have to be done. You see, and some of those things are not about trade rules. They have to just do also with improving your... That, basically, that's where citizens are going to start asking questions. Wait a minute, what's going on? Because here we are, when people bring tomatoes from Burkina Faso, farmers don't want them. Uh, trade, farmers and traders are hostile to tomato from Burkina Faso. But the other side, people are bringing tomato paste from Italy and canning it in Accra. And they are selling it freely in the market. I mean, these are all elements of the kind of misappreciation of the reality of the trade regime. I mean, it is possible to discuss the win-win things around production, for example, which could be beneficial. But too much is not receiving attention. Should we be worried then? We should be worried. Because the vision of African integration, which benefits people and it's kind of uh, coherent in terms of all these facets, is not what is going to unfold with the AFCFTA. Would you say, I mean, putting even the Secretariat aside and speaking to the productive part of things, because I think that before you trade, you have to learn to produce generate surplus. You, you trade your surplus. It looks to me like as a continent, we have not even mastered creating a surplus, which goes back to our productive capacity and efficiency. Um, so do we have the implementation capacity across 55 countries? Should there be a convergence criteria covering various aspects of the implementation? Or should we go through the regional economic blocks, such as the ECOWAS, uh, SADC, COMESA? How, how should we go about it? Because it's, it's a bit troubling. We seem to be putting the cart before the horse. Well, I mean, the negotiations eventually settled on it involved being around the RECs. Because the RECs are the historic building blocks of integration under the African Economic Community, Abuja Treaty. So after twing and froing, really, the RECs are the ones who are involved in the negotiations. So countries find common position within the RECs, which they then take into the Pan-African negotiation. So to that extent, there's a certain reinforcement of the role of the RECs, you know, by the process. Uh, on the thing about uh, creating value and surplus, it is, I mean, at the moment, we are creating value and surplus very heavily on raw material commodity exports. I mean, to the extent that markets, African markets are going to be open, you find that currently most manufacturers are one area where there's a lot of intra-African trade because our own standards and so on, you know, uh, are different from what maybe the, the markets of the global north there are. Not, non-tariff barriers, technical barriers of all types impede, you know, exports, tariff barriers and so on. Uh, so to that extent, Ghana's, uh, for example, plastics and aluminum industry, which is in demand a lot in the region, if the markets are opened, there'll be a boost for those kinds of products to go across the region. So there, there it would Liberalization does stimulate. It does stimulate for those who have the capacity, the ability to expand their reach. Liberalization on its own, without other measures, does not, as it were, bring other dormant potentials to life. If you can get financing, okay, if you can get a technical support and so on. Those are the things I'm talking about. So I mean, the, the, it would, some will come along. But the argument is that the, the effect of a, a kind of a, what I might call it, a chaotic, simple trade approach 
to the thing which has become dominant will mean that the, the cost of integration will be quite high because the losers... You mean the social cost? And economic also. I mean, the social cost will come from the economic cost. Uh, give you even a domestic example. At the moment, there's this whole thing about uh, illegal small-scale gold mining. Some of it, there are different types of Galamse people. They are the rich people who are simply criminals who can afford to move excavators from A to B with police protection and so on, political protection. But there are those who are scratching for a living. But there are also those against whom terms of trade have moved. So there are farmers who are ready to give their farms to Galamse people to dig because it is more profitable than the back-breaking labor of producing food, which may get rotten because there's no storage, there's no market, the prices are bad, and so on and so forth. These things that are already there will be aggravated in some cases. So we already have experience of how unbridled trade liberalization affects our economies. If we are talking about African integration and benefits for Africans, it's a bit strange that we haven't applied you know, those lessons. Because there are things that we argued against in the WTO, which we think it's okay to do in an African context. I don't get it. So, do you think it would be a good idea to embed a social contract across the markets to assure Africans or people who call Africa home a modicum or a basic quality of life that the state will be responsible for by a certain year. I don't know whether it's the 2063 target, the Agenda 2063 or whatever, but it would such policies or if you codify some of these elements into the agreement, would it force our policymakers to be more serious to deliver the agenda? Because we are the only continent that is lagging behind the rest of the world. You know, I mean, the, the thing about uh, labor clauses and things like that, uh, they would not change the essence of the agreement. And I think the, the what is not, I mean, there are many things that we should be having African cooperation about. Okay, industrial policy, uh, you know, finance. So we have things like, I mean, if you take the boosting to Africa trade, trade finance, for example, is one of the elements that it's there as a topic. Strengthening productive capacity, trade facilitation, infrastructure, you know, all those things are there. So there are things which are outside trade. Got trade at the end. You know, liberalization of, 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 of factor markets, if you want to put it boldly in that sense. Uh, trading services, you know, trading goods, two main elements of the thing. Um, people must, you must be doing things so that the, the, the capacity of the African, because you see, we, we, one of the things which is not being said about it, spoken about enough, is the fact that our economies are dominated by foreign companies. So the expansion, the boosting of the African market without a project of strengthening how it benefits African capital, not firms operating in Africa, but African capital, you could create an African market which would be wonderful for people operating, all economic actors within it. Boost uh, uh, output, but you still probably would end up with a lot of it leaving the continent. Somebody might say that, well, that's the price you pay for attracting uh, investment. But we know that outflows from this continent are the highest compared to any continent. The levels of reinvestment are not fantastic. So if you're, you create an African market, which also doesn't have a consciousness of how you build African ownership, African agency in the economy. You are basically taking 
the model as it is, dominated by foreign firms, expanding it and creating more opportunities for those foreign firms. There may, of course, be the incidental things where some jobs will be created and so on. But there is no guarantee that the structural shifts that we need so that we have an African economic integration, not trade integration alone, economic integration, systematically thought about. So all these plans are there in the REC agenda, in the you know, uh, AU agenda, but they get dropped. They don't receive enough attention alongside, because the trade liberalization actually, in a way, goes with the, the flow of what is dominant globally. Okay, you get some aid money to support, you know, how you operationalize it. The other measures involve taking a stand against dominant interest. Because from the perspective of this continent, we can't simply continue to accept the current international division of labor and our place in it. How do people like you get a voice and influence into the, the policy? The agreement is already out, but I believe that it can be improved, it can be strengthened through better stakeholder engagement. Even if we, we miss that opportunity in putting together this agreement, I think there's still an opportunity to, to listen to other voices of reason. I don't know that the thing is around improving the FCLT. I think that the, the, some of the areas that have not been negotiated yet could benefit from improvements in process so that you know, uh, they might be more sensitive and, and reflective. But unfortunately, the framework things have been set down. That's one. But the additional point is that there are other areas of African cooperation which are not receiving enough attention. The related issue, of course, is the rush. The rush. Almost as if, you know, we need to behave like we've lost something. The problems we are trying to solve don't require agreements, you know, uh, created, you know, uh, in haste, you know. Uh, so, so that's, that's the, the, another dimension uh, of it. And the national level and the regional level conversations, you see, which, as I said earlier, these are important elements, even in defining how people understand cost and benefit. The technocrats who sit around and do this negotiation, whose cost-benefit perspective informs, you know, uh, informs the, the position they take. It is true that some studies have been done in the past, but there are a whole range of areas where negotiations are being opened with fairly inadequate, you know, uh, knowledge base, but kind of, as it were, theoretical presumptions, okay, based on other people's experiences, okay. The African service sector, where they are, I mean, actually across the, our economies, small, medium, and uh, micro enterprises are dominant. That's where African operators are. How do you approach an African integration agenda, which is also sensitive to growing these actors. Those questions have been, you know, bouncing around, you know, at national levels for a very uh, long, long time. Uh, so the, the the issue is not simply how we improve the conversation around the FCFTA. That is important, but there are a lot of other things also which are not receiving enough attention you know, in the discussion about integration. Because the FCFTA is not a blueprint for African transformation as it is being put forward. There will be some transformation, but it is it will be a transformation of the type which we have seen wrought by free trade agreements. And we know what comes with those. This has been very illuminating, Dr. Graham, as usual, very informed opinion on things and there are a couple of things that have come out in this conversation first of all the conflation of the trade agreement with integration economic integration 
the weak consultation process, if at all? I'll say weak engagement. Consultation, it's, a, it's kind of one-sided mm. because we are negotiating. There must be a framework of you know, give and take. Mm -hmm. We used to remark when we used to go work around the WTO. You find the big powers, they come with large delegations. Okay, So the TRIPS agreement in the WTO was driven by big American companies who wanted to protect their intellectual property. Because the TRIPS agreement creates a monopoly. It doesn't liberalize. So you have the WTO liberalizing trade in goods and services. But inside there, there's an agreement protecting intellectual property monopoly. They drove it, okay, and made sure their governments went to the table with something that they were interested in. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an engagement. So actually, in a way, it, the AFCAT highlights what we know to be the democratic deficit in our countries. It highlights the democratic deficit that we have in our countries. Okay, it's just another instance of that democratic deficit. And each time it happens, we need to, to call it out because of the consequences. And this presumption also that once politicians invoke, them, invoke the national interest and clothe themselves in it, it means therefore that indeed the national interest has been properly identified and there's accountability for how power has been used. And another thing I've picked up from our conversation has been the decoupling of trade liberalization from productive capacity and economic, enhancing the economic benefits to locals from the trade regime. The other point, the factor that you've talked about has been the, the sequencing. The sequencing, and you made a comparison with Europe, where they focused on productive capacity before trade, to strengthen their productive capacity. You've also talked about the fact that it may magnify the existing fault lines of inequality, of capacity deficiency, know-how. So it's, it's, we, are, we are really creating a platform for trade within Africa, but not necessarily for the benefit of Africans in the sense that it may not be African capital and the dividends may not accrue to Africans at the end of it all, at the end of the production cycle and of the trade cycle. And these are important factors to also consider alongside the trade regime. The trade regime is important, it's good, but it's not sufficient to give us what we are looking for as Africans. And this has been a very illuminating conversation with you, Dr. Graham. Um, I hope we have the opportunity to talk to you further as we try to share the experience and knowledge of people like you in an open source manner to make this information available to anyone who cares to, to listen to and wants to learn about some of these topical issues of the, of the day. Uh, that's the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement. We can only hope that our policymakers and our political leaders str strengthen their consultative and engagement process because, I, as you rightly said, there are a lot more stakeholders that need to be brought under the tent to discuss and thrash out how do we achieve trade liberalization whilst at the same time enhancing economic opportunity there are immediate lessons to learn from the structural adjustment programs of the 1980s and 1990s and I believe that that should serve as a, the, the index to calibrate these agreements going forward and how the dividend of liberalization would be distributed equitably across Africa for its teeming populations. So thank you very much, Dr. Graham, and I hope that next time we get to talk about other issues that I'm dying to talk to you about, um, about um, your early days in the Ghana Revolution, 
<laughs> I'm sure that uh, people would like to hear a lot about your participation in the revolution, what it was like as a young person, I guess you were in your 20s or 30s? Yeah, early 20s. Early 20s, to be part of a, a revolution that unseated a government and you found yourself in the corridors of power. I'd like to talk to you about that, how it felt and what lessons you learned from it and what lessons um, current generation and future generations can, can learn from, from you. But just out of curiosity, why didn't you... What made you leave politics? I haven't left politics. I mean, if you're talking about party politics, yes, I'm not a member of any political party. Why? But if you talk about politics in terms of you know, its essence as citizens, you know, having a voice, trying to influence what happens to them. Uh, all I do is driven by politics. But why aren't you a mainstream politician, given your... I mean, none of the parties, I don't see any of the parties. I mean, frankly, I mean, you were talking earlier about competition in politics. Actually, we are talking about different factions who share a common outlook, whether it's a policy outlook, whether in terms of personal agenda, whether it's in terms of the attitude to power and the populace, they are very similar. You know, kind of a corrupt, self-serving, dishonest in terms of how they represent their objectives, and not, don't have any sense of accountability. So elections really is just a ritual where you know you you one faction comes to power at the expense of the other uh, but there's a consensus about what they want to do with the country and how politics serves them um, so i don't see either of the two main parties as something worth participating in uh, i think i make a better contribution in the way that I participate, you know, as a citizen, working with like-minded people around specific things in the policy areas that, you know, we work, and also, you know, as an individual in the things that uh, I do. But I remain very much a, a political person. And I have friends across the, 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 the parties that I speak to, because the political parties actually, there are a lot of good people, you know, because after all, citizens who want a better thing for their country. and. Many of them are very frustrated by the leadership of their, of their parties. And, you know. Uh, okay, that's a conversation for another day. Mm -hmm. So, when you're not doing policy advocacy, policy analysis, and all that, how do you unwind? What do you do to. I, I debate football with anybody I meet. Like I was doing with your sons today. <laughs> <laughs> so. I was telling them the other day how European football has decimated African football. That's globalization. Exactly. Yeah. So I was telling them that if they are hitting out against the the ISL, they mm. should remember that the same structures d dismantled the game as we knew it in yes. Africa. Yes. And I don't yes. think they have that context. And what is your favorite music genre? Music. Yes. Oh, I, I listen to, actually, I'm a bit eclectic, uh, but I, I listen a lot to, to jazz, uh, including, you know, uh, Alaska African Township jazz, actually. It's, oh, it's, wow. it's, it's yeah. interesting. You know, Abdullah Ibrahim. Soweto Swing String Quartet. So I like jazz. And also, basically, African music, you know, across the board. I like African. I think the current Ghanaian you know, music scene is very lively and interesting. So I try to keep up with all the young, you know, the, the music without the turf wars and posturing and trying to copy the American <laughs> rap scene, you know. But uh, I think there are some very good things being, being produced, you know, locally. What would you have done as an alternative career if you didn't do what you do now? Um, I mean, in terms of my original career path, if I'd followed it. I mean, I, I studied law. I got a scholarship from the law student as one of the top students to go and do my postgrad to come back to teach, okay? Uh, with teaching, I did very briefly at some point when I was doing my PhD. Uh, so being a lecturer would have been one because I, I remain, you know, I would say that I remain a 
somebody deeply interested in, uh, in ideas. Um, so that I would, I would have done. I probably would have practiced law also, because again, very early on, the things we, we tried to do was to do some public interest law uh, things, uh, which we've continued to do in, in, in various forms. So I would have applied my legal training for the same kind of things. And I almost certainly would have some form of uh, ad, a kind of uh, advocacy uh, involvement. You know, okay. uh, and um, who's, who's your mentor? Who, who do you admire in history or contemporary the, the, times? The, 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 who, who do you look up to if uh, there's one person? I mean, there's, I don't think that there's one person I look up to. You know, uh, maybe it had to do with my difficult relations with my father. So we meant that the, the kind of single figure person was not there. You know, my mother was very influential in my life compared to my, my father. Uh, but I've been influenced by a whole range of you know, people. I mean, Ben Luther. Care to name some of them? I mean, many, I mean, the uh, people like uh, there's Nkrumah, uh, there's Malcolm X, um, there, there's Marx, there's Lenin, um, my teachers, um, Professor Akil Basoya, was a very important uh, influence in my, in my life as a as a young student. You know, I was making choices about my postgraduate studies and so on. Then my supervisor, when I was in the University of Warwick doing my PhD, Professor Saul Pichotto, was very supportive. Um, you know, so we, we became you know uh, friends. Uh, because my wife, it's uh, Professor George Chikata, is a very important, you know, person uh, in in my in my life. Um, there was uh, an Australian student, interestingly, uh, who came to Legon to do a postgrad work, and she was interested in leftist politics. So we were the people seen as the leftists on campus in those days. So we became friends. And through actually, I saw, I read some of the first uh, explicitly feminist literature. One was interested in women's equality and so on, but she was the person who has read some of my first explicitly feminist, you know, literature. I mean, this was just, but in retrospect, she was a very important influence in terms of my own kind of uh, evolution as, he, uh, as a intellectually. And any reason why you were leftist leaning? Well, from very early on, I was always interested in fairness, you know. Of course, at that time, we didn't formulate it philosophically or ideologically. Uh, so it's a kind of a hindsight characterization. Uh, way back in secondary school, actually, we were involved in things like the student movement for uh, African unity, anti-apartheid, you know. As I was telling uh, your sons, I mean, the Black Lives Matter, it's a... Uh, Precursor was the it's kind of civil rights thing in the, in the 60s and 70s that you know influenced the, uh, some of us. So, and in going to a Catholic boys' boarding school, which was a pretty strict place, St. Augustine's, I think the instinct to ask questions about why you had to do certain things was uh, was easy to come by. So already I was very active in in on, the, in, on St. Augustine's about how things should be or should not be. I look back now and uh, I remember we had a, we used to elect school prefects and one of the planks on our platform when we ran for uh, prefect's office was that, you know, sanctions should be replaced with incentives. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of incentives? Oh, incentives. Because there's no, generally incentives were not thought of as the way to motivate young people. And we felt the focus on sanctions was there. And as a prefect, I tried some of that. And I think it was largely successful within the limits of my small uh, powers <laughs> of about 80 or so people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been very interesting having this chat with you, Dr. Graham. As I said, I'd be interested in having a follow-up discussion with you centered around Ghana and your experience in the 31st December revolution and everything after 
I think it would be an interesting conversation to have. You, you've been listening to Dr. Yao Graham, who is the coordinator of the Third World Network Africa, one of the influential and preeminent policy think tanks in Africa. We've been talking about the political economy implications of the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement. I think has made some very good points in terms of illuminating some of the other equally important factors that need to be considered by all who want to see the continent of Africa and its people make progress within this century. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation and look forward to the next podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with your network. Also, remember to read the podcast on your listening platform or visit the It's Morning in Africa Facebook page to leave your review and feedback to help us curate future content. Subscribe to the podcast and tune in again for another episode. This podcast has been produced by Corby Duado.